0: to Daniel chapter 2. Um, if you are new with us, uh, typically we, um, we study books of the Bible. I don't think we will get all the way through the book of Daniel, um, but we are going to get many, many chapters in. Our Vacation Bible School is going to be studying uh, uh, the the trial in the fiery furnace. And so When VBS ends in two weeks, we will end that Sunday, or we will that Sunday uh, start Daniel chapter 3. If you've been with us, you know that as we have gone through the book of Romans, uh, the book of Romans has uh, over 450 verses in it, and that took us, what, four years? So this morning I'm covering 49 verses. Um, So we'll see how that goes. so one of the things that I want you to see this morning as we look at this book, we are going to do um, kind of the, the, the 30,000 foot picture um, of this chapter. But, but I also think that as we look at the book of Daniel, sometimes we get down into the intricacies of some of the prophecies of the book of Daniel and we miss the bigger picture. And what I want you to see this morning is that Daniel is telling us something. As he's writing this account, he is telling us something. And he tells us over and over and over. And so, as a congregation, as the pastor who's studying this text, I want to make sure we get what he is telling us. And like I said last week, we will completely miss the story of this book if we come to this book simply wanting to know how we can be more like Daniel we're going to miss it because we're going to miss the whole point of the book of Daniel. And the whole point of the book of Daniel is that Daniel serves a God that is sovereign, that is good, and that cares about the lives of his people. And any bit of courage, any bit of uh, tenacity that we see from Daniel, we're going to see this morning... That Daniel tells us, this doesn't come from me, but it comes from the God that I serve. And so I hope that we will have this resolve. One of the verses we didn't spend much time on last week, and we could have spent a whole lesson on in Daniel chapter 1, verse 8. But Daniel made up his mind that he would not defile himself with the king's choice food or with the wine which he drank. And I love that first phrase, and somebody brought it up to me uh, last week, uh, that how much this phrase had meant to them. And I do think it's a theme here in the book of Daniel, the, the fact that Daniel made up his mind. What Daniel knew allowed him to set in his mind a course that allowed him to be God's man in a very, very difficult situation, in a a culture that was foreign. If you weren't here last week, the Cliff Note version is that Daniel and his friends were taken into captivity. They were in a foreign place uh, uh, with people who served foreign gods. And this week, uh, we see Daniel again um, in, in the midst of a very interesting situation. And I want to jump right into the text. Let's look at the first nine verses. It says, In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams, and his spirit was troubled, and his sleep left him. The king gave orders to call all the magicians, the conjurers, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king, and the king said to them, I had a dream, and my spirit is anxious to understand the dream. Then the Chaldeans spoke to the king in Aramaic. Now, just a brief note here. They they spoke in Aramaic, which was their language. O king, live forever. Tell the dream of your servants, and we will declare the interpretation. What's interesting in the book of Daniel is that from here until chapter 7, the book of Daniel is written in Aramaic. It switches languages, and we don't know exactly why, uh, except for the, the division seems to be uh, and, and you'll see this as, if you continue to read the book of Daniel, if, as you see, is that um, God is working this wonderful thing here, which He's not only making Himself known um, to His people who are in captivity, the Jewish people, the, the people of the tribe of Judah, but He's making a name for Himself among the, the pagans of, of Babylon. And so one of the theories, and I think it's a good theory and interesting, is that as it is written in this in this language that it is declaring the works of the Lord in and amongst the people of Babylon. So the people could read and and understand this. Now, so he says to Aramaic, tell your dreams to the servant and declare the interpretation. Then the king replied to the Chaldeans, notice the king's disposition here. This command from me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream... And its interpretation, you'll be torn limb from limb and your houses will be made a rubbish heap. So what was going on is that the king had this dream that troubled him and he brought all these people in to interpret the dream. And instead of the king saying, here's the dream, interpret it like a Freudian thing thing on a couch, he said, no, 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 you're going to tell me the dream. Now it's interesting. Because one of the things that we know about human nature and human behavior, and I'm going to let you into a little bit of uh, counseling and psychology, is that sometimes I'll have people come in to see me, and they're, they, they, it's, it's a little mysterious, and so a lot of times they'll look around and whisper, they'll say, hey, I've had this recurrent dream. Do you do, like, dream therapy? And I'll say, tell me your dream. And one of the things, that's, so, so here's a common one, is... So they tell me the dream, and the dream is every night for the past six months, they've had a dream where something was chasing them, a bear, a lion, uh, whatever. I was like, I've got the interpretation. And they say, what? I'm like, you're anxious. <laughs> like, how did you know that? Huh. Well, what's happening is, is your brain doesn't shut off when you're dreaming. And so sometimes your brain, when you're, when you're dreaming, will... Uh, 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 project things in your sleep. And so when when I'm asking people this, I'm asking, hey, what was your feeling in the dream? I was anxious. Oh, you're anxious. Yeah, I'm riddled with anxiety. Okay, yeah, let's work on that. Nebuchadnezzar knew he had some wise people who had studied these type of things, but he was so troubled by them, he didn't want that kind of interpretation. (laughs) Whatever, We'll see what the dream was. But it was so troubling and disturbing to him that he's saying, you're going to tell me what the dream was and if you don't, I'm going to wipe all of you out. I'm going to wipe all of you out. Tear you limb from limb, as he said. The king replied, verse 8, I know for certain that you are bargaining for time because they said that, king, we can't do this. Inasmuch as you have seen the command from me is firm, that if you do not make the dream known to me, there's only one decree for you. For you have agreed together to speak lying and corrupt words before me until the situation is changed. Therefore, tell me the dream that I may know that you can declare to me its interpretation. Now, the next two verses I think are key to this whole text. So we've got to understand, and one of the things that I want you to see this morning is that Daniel, although he didn't have this language, it's exactly what he was doing in writing this, and in telling this the way that he tells us, it's very clear to me that Daniel is challenging the worldview of the time. And so I want you to, I'm going to draw our attention back to this, but but notice this. The Chaldeans answered the king, and notice what they said. They said, number one, there is not a man on earth who could declare the matter for the king? Inasmuch as no great king or ruler has ever asked anything like this of any magician, conjurer, or Chaldean. So, the first thing that he says, the first thing that these men are saying, is that there is no man on earth who could do what you're asking, king. Notice the second thing that he says. Moreover, the thing which the king demands is difficult. And there is no one else who could declare it to the king except gods. But notice what he says here about gods whose dwelling place is not with mortal flesh. Isn't this interesting? Isn't this interesting that we see the worldview come into play? That they're saying uh, there are limitations on man. There is no man That could do this. And then they're saying. Notice what they're saying about their gods. And this is a polytheistic culture. They're saying that no gods can do this either. Because the gods dwelling place is not with mortal flesh. In other words as they're looking to the gods that they're serving. Or worshipping. They may have a rain god. Or a fertility god. Or a sun god. But the. These gods don't dwell with mortals and don't interact in such a way where this sort of thing could be possible. It's very interesting to me, different but very interesting to me, that today, at least in America and in the West, the popular theory in philosophy and psychology would be a naturalistic, atheist worldview. Where there is no such thing as supernatural. Uh, another way to say this, a, a writer, uh, John Lennox, uh, talks about this in the way of, that the, the naturalistic, atheist position is that we are in a closed system. That we have to explain everything that happens or can happen within that system. So within that, a, a view of God is just something that is Helpful to us kind of get through life. There is no supernatural power that can interact. We are kind of all just kind of left here with the system that's been set up and it moving forward. Very interesting. Very interesting that the worldview of that day is not much different than the predominant worldview that we live in ourselves. So Daniel here, as we go forward, he's setting us up. And he's setting us up to see who this God really is. And so in verses 12 and 13, we see the king's decree. So the king becomes indignant and very furious and gave orders to destroy all the wise men of Babylon. So the decree went forth that the wise men should be slain. And they looked for Daniel and his friends to kill them. And I love this section. I love... uh, We're going to glean... Um, something very important from this. Notice, then Daniel replied, and again last week, remember how we talked about Daniel's temperament in the face of difficult times? Daniel's temperament in the face of dealing with difficult situations? Notice this, Daniel replied with discretion and discernment to Arioch, the captain of the king's bodyguard who had gone forth to slay the wise men of Babylon. Again, Daniel didn't come at this man with arrogance, he didn't come at him with a haughty attitude. He came at him. He came to him with discretion and discernment. And he said to Arioch, and we're going to see three things that we need to note from this. But notice, he said to Arioch, the king's commander, for what reason is the decree from the king so urgent? And then Arioch informed Daniel about the matter. The first thing. So Daniel went in and requested of the king that he would give him time. That when Daniel was faced with this literal life or death situation, he went in and requested, King, requested, will the king give me some time? He didn't act hastily. Notice what he did with the time, and that's the second thing that we're going to see. He went and requested time in order that he might declare the interpretation to the king. And then Daniel went to his house and informed his friend Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, about the matter. So the first thing is that Daniel asked for time. The second thing is that he went to his godly friends and he went to them with the burden. He didn't shoulder this burden alone. Uh, we, just did the, we just went through Friday night in new members class and within our literature um, we have the words that you've often heard Gary say about there 's three primary ways that God uh, means for us to grow and pursue through life, the Word of God above us, the Holy Spirit within us, and the people of God around us. And we see Daniel, we see Daniel navigating this, and he goes to his friends to share the burden with his friends. And then look at verse 18, and this is vital. Notice why he goes to his friends. Verse 18 says, he goes to his friends, so that, so that they may request compassion from the God of heaven concerning this mystery, so that Daniel and the friends would not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. He went to these friends so that they would pray. So... I want you to see this just real quickly this morning. We could could park here. We're not going to, but we could park here. First thing I want you to notice about this. Never use the statement, all we can do is pray. Brothers and sisters, if we truly understand who it is we're praying to and the fact that He bids us to come and pray, that is the best Greatest, most essential thing that we should do is pray. Praying is not a last resort, it is our only resort. The second thing, notice the difference between Daniel's friends and maybe our friends, uh, certainly Job's friends. Job's friends were quick to give him advice, <laughs> Job's friends were quick to pray. They're quick to pray. They're not giving him an opinion. They're going to the Lord and pleading on his behalf. Oh, that we would be friends to one another like this. And lastly, lastly, I want to ask you, do you believe in the power of prayer? Daniel and his friends believed in the power of prayer. When I was a young uh, person in the ministry, I had an older gentleman. Uh, We were going to... Um, Someone in our church's home to pray that um, they had cancer and we were going to pray for them as elders. They had called the elders in. And uh, a good friend of mine pulled me aside and said, Lewis, if you don't believe God can do it and you're not willing to pray that God will do it, don't go. Challenged me. And so now every time that I go into a situation like that, my friend's words echo in my head and, and, and I want to be a person that prays just like this morning. I want to be a person that prays that I know that God can take cancer from a brother like Neil or wake Ina up just like that this morning. I believe that with everything in me. The sovereign king of the universe hears our prayers. Notice his response to Daniel. I love this. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a night vision. And notice the first thing that Daniel does. With everybody's necks on the line, his friends, their necks are on the line. We're not told how long the king gave him, if the king gave him any time. But notice that as Daniel hears uh, the, the dream and its interpretation, notice the first thing that he does is he worships. And notice the, the, the worship. It's really broken down in, again in two parts. And this is a theme in this book. Notice these two parts. The, the first two verses. As Daniel is worshiping God, he says this. Let the name of God be blessed forever and ever. For wisdom and power belong to God. It is He who changes the times and the epochs. He removes kings and He establishes kings. He gives wisdom to wise men and knowledge to men of understanding. What He is proclaiming here is that the God of Daniel... The God that we serve is the sovereign of the universe. And notice at the end of verse 21 and into 22 and 23, it is He who reveals the profound and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells in Him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise, for you have given me wisdom and power. Even now you have made known to me what we requested of you, for you have made known to us the king's matter." What he is saying is that not only is God sovereign and all-powerful, but God is personal. He is not far off. He's not uninterested. He's not aloof. But this God is personal. And he cares for Daniel and his friends so much that he gives Daniel the interpretation of this dream to spare his life. What a picture of the mercy and the grace of God. And it is from this place that we see the boldness of Daniel. And, and look at these next verses. This is just a wonderful section of, of Scripture. In verse 24, Therefore Daniel went in to Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and spoke to him as follows, Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Take me into the king's presence, and I'll declare the interpretation to the king. The boldness there. Then in verse 25, Notice notice. Notice Arioch's response. I I just love this. Then Arioch hurriedly brought Daniel into the king's presence and spoke to him as follows. Notice what Arioch says. I have found a man among the exiles of Judah who can make the interpretation known to the king. We see in this proclamation that Arioch is saying, hey, I have found a man. I'm going to be the savior uh, of all of these people. And I'm trying to gain favor in your sight, O oh God. But but again, again, notice what Daniel, as he's writing this, is pointing us to. The king said to Daniel, whose name was Beltazjar, Are you able to make known to me the dream which I have seen and its interpretation? The king asked a pretty straightforward question. Is it like Arioch said? Are you able to make known the dream and its interpretation? And notice what Daniel says. This is crystal clear what he is pointing us to. Daniel answered before the king and said, As for the mystery about which the king is inquired, neither wise men, conjurers, magicians, nor diviners are able to declare it to the king. However, I, that's not what the text says, is it? Look at what the text says. This is so exciting. However, there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. And he has made known to the king Nebuchadnezzar what will take place in the latter days. This was your dream and the visions in your mind while on your bed. Do you notice the conflict of worldviews? When we go back and when we look at the magicians and diviners and they say there is no man that can do this. And the gods, they don't dwell with mortal men. And when Daniel steps in after receiving from the sovereign God of the universe what this interpretation is, Daniel says, you're right, there, are, there is no man that can do this, but there is a God in heaven. He is sovereign. He can do it. He, and He loves me So much that he gave me this dream to declare to you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Just breathtaking. So Daniel tells the king of the dream. And so we hear the dream. Notice this first in verse 30. Again, Daniel stating this again. But as for me, this mystery has not been revealed to me for any wisdom residing in me more than any other living man. So Daniel is saying, it has nothing to do with me, but for the purpose of making the interpretation known to the king, that you may understand the thoughts of your mind. And then he gives the dream, and we'll look at the dream. You, O king, were looking, and behold, there was a single great statue. That statue which was large and of extraordinary splendor was standing in front of you, and its appearance was awesome. Now, one of the things you need to know about this culture is that kings would often make statues, and statues of themselves, and that was kind of a way of saying, I am the sovereign. They would particularly do it when they had captured uh, many peoples, and this was a declaration of, of majesty and might and sovereignty. And you can't miss that when you're going to get to this interpretation in a minute. So there was a statue in front of him and the head of the statue was made of fine gold and its breast and its arms of silver and its belly and its thighs of bronze, its legs iron and its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. You continued looking until a stone was cut out without hands. Notice that that's important. That there was a stone cut out without hands and it struck the statue on its feet of iron and the clay crushed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were all crushed at the same time, and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away, so that not a trace of them was found. But the stone struck the statue. That struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Now, a lot of people want to spend a lot of time in this next section on interpretation. And we don't have it. But we're going to get the main theme of it. So bear with me here because I want you to hear the main theme of the interpretation of this dream. So Daniel, as he's interpreting the dream, he said, this was the dream. Now we will tell its interpretation before the king. You, O king, are the king of kings, to whom, notice, God, the God of heaven has given the kingdom and power, the strength and glory. And wherever sons of men dwell, or the beast of the field, or the birds of the sky, he has given them into your hand, and has caused you to rule over them. You are the head of gold. Next, he talks about two more kingdoms uh, that will happen after Nebuchadnezzar. He says, after you there will arise another kingdom, inferior to you. Then a third kingdom of bronze, which will rule over the earth. And one of the things that we know, that's pretty crystal clear, that... Um, expositors of the word most of them do not disagree on. It's, it's, a, it's interesting that there's conformity uh, to things like this, but they believe that the, the kingdom right after the Babylonian kingdom was the Medo-Persian um, kingdom. The other one that he talks about in verse 39 is the, the Greece kingdom, and we know those are historical realities. And then he talks about there will be a fourth kingdom, and this is Rome, as strong as iron. Inasmuch iron crushes and shatters all things, so, like iron, that breaks in pieces. It will crush and break all these in pieces. In that you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron. It will be a divided kingdom, but it will have in its toughness of iron inasmuch as you saw the iron mixed with common clay. As the toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly of pottery, so the kingdom will be strong and part of of it will be brittle. And in that you saw the iron mixed with the common clay, they will combine with one another, and the seed of men, but they will not adhere to one another, even as iron does not combine with pottery. And here's the big point. You've got these kingdoms that are set up. And then here's the big point. Notice these next two verses. In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed. And that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms. But it itself will endure forever. Inasmuch as you saw that a stone was cut out of the mountain without hands and that it crushed the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king What will take place in the future so that the dream is true and its interpretation is trustworthy? Now, one of the things that's interesting about this is that um, liberal scholars don't debate the accuracy of Daniel's interpretation. Do you know what liberal scholars debate? When the book was written. Liberal scholars want to place the book of Daniel being written much later and they want to put it written in the uh, 2nd century B.C. because what they say is that there is no way with this much accuracy something could be prophesied about. Now, the irony in this is what? It's the whole point of the chapter. And it's the whole reason... I've got to be careful with my language here. The fallacy of liberal scholars is that they don't believe in a God that is sovereign and that interacts and that supernaturally does things on our behalf. They don't believe it. At the end of the day, That's the agenda of the liberal church. Brothers and sisters, this is the great God of heaven. And he has told us what happened. At this point, he was predicting the future. But he is also telling us what will take place. And notice the things that are vital for us to know that God's kingdom will reign, it will never be destroyed. The kingdom of God will never be destroyed. When Peter gives his great confession, and Jesus says, hey, you're right, and on this confession I'm going to build my church, and that was that Jesus is Lord, notice that he says the gate of Hades will not prevail against the church. The gates of Hades will not prevail against the kingdom of God. This kingdom will put an end to all other kingdoms. And the stone, the stone that crushes is Christ. And you may say, whoa, wait a minute, that's not in the text. It's clearly in the text. In the New Testament, Jesus often says things like this, fill in the blank, my what is not of this world? kingdom. In the passage, the reason... Well, I didn't read this passage. I was going to change the passage that I read. Do you remember in Luke chapter nineteen, chapter 20, the parable of the vine growers? I'll read it very quickly to you. Jesus began to tell the people a parable. A man planted a vineyard and rented it out to vine growers and went on a journey for a long time. At the harvest time, he sent a slave to the vine growers so that they would give him some of the produce of the vineyard. But the vine growers beat him and sent him empty-handed. He proceeded to send another slave. But they beat him also and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he proceeded to send a third. And this one they also wounded and cast out. The owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the vine growers saw him, they reasoned with one another, saying, This is the heir. Let's kill him so that the inheritance will be ours. So they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then? Will the owner of the vineyard do to them? Verse 16, He will come and destroy these vine growers and will give the vineyard to others. When they heard it, they said, May it never be. Notice this. But Jesus looked at them and said, What then is this that is written? The stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, but whom on whomever it falls, I will scatter him like the dust. Notice the language? That Jesus Christ came. And Jesus Christ inaugurated the kingdom of God. And Jesus Christ will come again. And when he comes again, his kingdom will be fully inaugurated, and this kingdom will never be destroyed will reign forever. And everyone who has put their hope and trust in Jesus will be a part of this kingdom. And this kingdom is so powerful. Not only does it destroy all other kingdoms, but it destroys the dominion of Satan and his kingdom so that sin and death will reign no more. Do you believe this, church? Do you believe this? Now... Nebuchadnezzar, who knew nothing concerning Jesus, noticed his response. Notice his response. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face. This king, who was just ready to murder all these people, this very, very powerful, the most powerful man around, fell on his face and did homage to Daniel and gave orders to present him an offering and fragrant incense. And the king answered Daniel and said, Notice the end here. He got it. We started with these magicians who said, No man can do this, and the gods don't dwell with us. We had Daniel said, There is a God in heaven. And notice the ending of this chapter. It's the king, the pagan king says, Surely your God is God of gods and Lord of kings. These two titles very easy to see, are talking about the sovereignty of God. He is God of gods and Lord of kings. And then notice the last title, and a revealer of mysteries. God is sovereign and God is personal. Then the king promoted Daniel and gave him many great gifts, and he made him the ruler over the whole province of Babylon and the chief perfect over all the wise men of Babylon. And Daniel made requests of the king, and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the administration in the province of Babylon, while Daniel was still the king of the court. Now, um, one of the things that I wish I could say is that um, this was the turning point in Nebuchadnezzar's life. We're going to see other things about Nebuchadnezzar. But notice in chapter 3, verse 1, Nebuchadnezzar the king made an image of gold. What a great God that we serve. He is sovereign. He is over us his will is the will of the universe and that he wins in the end and Christ came and made a way and reconciled us to God so that we can have a personal relationship with him. And you may say, well, how in the world is my relationship with God personal? And the first thing I would say is that if you are a Christian, you are in Christ. That you are his son and that you are his daughter. That you are his beloved. That is your position the second thing I would say is that he has given you his book he's given you the Bible so that in the pages of this Bible this isn't some mere academic lesson that we learn when we open up this word we get to learn about who this God is we get to learn about what he is like we get to learn about promises that he's given to us when we come to this word, we should come to this word thirsty and hungry, and we should find nourishment and fulfillment here as one of his children. And thirdly, we have the Holy Spirit and that the spirit of God moves in us. It makes this word alive. It leads us, it convicts us, it prompts us. We have this personal Relationship with God. Now, I want to um, say some things here that may rattle you to the core. But, people of America, I know we have some people of India over here. People of America, are you holding on tight? The Republicans, the Democrats, the independence and all those in between, none of them are going to establish a kingdom that will endure forever. If we of the people of God are placing our hope in that, we are gravely mistaken. And in some ways, okay, I could go too far here, too long, not too far, too, too long here. But in some ways, I want to challenge us to know, to recognize, and to live out where our true hope comes from. We have a God in heaven who is establishing and will will establish His kingdom. Now, so what does that mean? Does that mean that we go... uh, And if you have a farm in Sequatchie, this is no knock on you. Does that mean that we... Because this is my temptation. Does this mean we go find some land in Sequatchie? And grow our own foods and get off the grid and don't pay any taxes and try to hold ourselves up and be out of the world. No, notice notice what God does. In a pagan Babylonian society, notice what happens. The king promoted Daniel and gave him many gifts. And then Daniel made a request and the king appointed Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego to the administration of Babylon. It doesn't mean that we withdraw... In fact, in many ways, God wants us to be involved in government systems. God wants us to be involved in the political system. But He wants us to be involved for the common good of man. So that we can make stands for those who need us to make stands for them. For the common good of people. And notice why else. That it's good for us to be in these places. What people were saved because the God of Daniel spoke to in Daniel and interpreted his dream? Certainly Daniel was saved, right? Certainly Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were saved. But do you notice who else was saved? The magicians, the sorcerers, All these people who had this false idea about God. And do you notice who became their boss? Daniel. (laughs) So in being in these places, keeping the right mind frame of who it is we serve, the kingdom that we're really looking for and that we're taking part in, that as we navigate these lines, know... It is if we keep our mind fixed on where it needs to be fixed that God will work through us. And so we don't need to retreat to Sequatchie as as much as I would like to at times. I have turned off the TV I must admit or at least not the Braves games but the uh, political stuff I have turned off the TV. So in ending I just want you to I just want to say just four things about God and then we will pray. God is not silent. In the former days he spoke to us through the prophets, but now he has spoken to us through his son. God is not silent. He has given us a book. He is not unmoved. He cares about our troubles. He cares about our trials. He is working. His will is best. His will is best. And we find most comfort when we put our trust in Him even when situations don't work out quite like we think they should. And in two weeks we'll look at that. Let's pray. God, again, I am amazed (laughs) that there is a God in heaven who calls me his son. (laughs) God, I pray that, Lord, as we leave here today, that we don't leave here resolved to be more like Daniel in some kind of character study that would psychoanalyze Daniel and where his strength came from internally. But God, that we will look to Daniel and be resolved to be more like him in that, knowing that his strength and his courage comes from you. Help us to be a people who are countercultural, who are loving, and who look to you, look to you as the author and the finisher of our faith. God, all this is only possible for us through your son Jesus who died on the cross. Amen.